Amen. So let's kind of recap where we've been. So last semester, uh, well, really, the, the past few semesters, we've been talking about systematic theology, kind of taking these topics from Scripture and asking, uh, kind of if we bring the entirety of Scripture to bear, what does it say about these particular topics? And so uh, where we were last semester is uh, as we began with the doctrine of sin, uh, we, be- we began with the doctrine of man and then went into the doctrine of sin. What is the doctrine of man called? Study of man, anthropology, and then we went into the study of sin, which is called what? Homardiology, and then uh, and then we began on soteriology, which is what? Doctrine of salvation. So last semester we really saw uh, kind of the accomplishment of salvation, and and this semester we're continuing with soteriology. Uh, but we're not looking so much at the accomplishment of, uh, of salvation, but instead the application of redemption, the application of, of salvation, how what Christ uh, has accomplished is applied to uh, you and, uh, and to me. And so uh, that's what we have been talking about. In the past few weeks, we've been working through uh, something that we call the Ordo Salutis, Ordo salutis means order of salvation. And so we've kind of looked at how there is this uh, certain order to uh, our experience of salvation. It's not necessarily a chronological order. We talked about uh, this last week. Uh, But there is a logical order. Certain things happen before other things can happen. And so last week we saw uh, that regeneration happens before faith. That uh, you have to have a heart that is willing to believe uh, in order to believe. And, uh, and so what happens is God takes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. We've been talking about this ordo salutis. And so right after regeneration, which is what we talked about last week, uh, we want to talk about uh, faith. And so I want to read this uh, from the Westminster Confession. Uh, it uh, is in your notes there. It says, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word for the authority of God Himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. Yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for, his, for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. And so what we're going to to talk about today is really kind of working through various elements that you see there. And so answering the question, what is faith? How do we get it? Why does God do it like that? Faith in what? Uh, And on and on we will go. So I want to begin with a definition and then we're going to do something similar to what we've done uh, a few times, which is just kind of talk about a few different things that you need to know about faith. In particular, 12 things that you should believe about faith. But first, let's look at a couple of, uh, of definitions. So uh, Burkhoff, who wrote a, uh, uh, a famous systematic th- uh, theology book, he said that, uh, that faith is that act of God whereby he causes the regenerated in their conscious life to turn to him in faith and Repentance. You see there even the priority of regeneration 
before faith. So only the regenerate can exercise faith, uh, Burkhoff is saying. We talked about that last week. We'll talk about it again uh, this week. Some. That's one of the most important things that you need to grasp about this relationship between regeneration and, uh, and faith. Wayne Grudem, who you've heard uh, his name mentioned a number of times, says, saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life uh, with God. If you're looking kind of at a biblical definition, uh, then maybe one of the better ones would be, now faith is assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So those are a few definitions, but let's talk about these 12 different things that you should believe about faith. The first one to note is that any particular word that you might use, that you might associate with faith, can be somewhat misleading. We've talked about this uh, quite often, that uh, human language can, uh, can be misleading, that human language is, uh, is somewhat uh, weak, and so we use the same word for different contexts. And so, uh, for example, taking just the word faith, we're talking about faith today, that's the entire topic, uh, but sometimes we use the word faith in a way that's very misleading if we take the way that we typically use the word faith and apply it to the way the, the biblical authors are going to use the word faith. And so, uh, for example, I might have faith, or better yet, Tim might have faith. He's much more of an optimist when it comes to the Aggies than I am. Uh, but uh, Tim might have faith that the Aggies are going to win the national championship this year, right? It's not going to happen. It never happens, right? I've been an Aggie a very long time. They're going to end up the season at 8-4 and because they end every season at 8-4. and four. That's just the way that it happens. So we use the word faith for things that really mean something like wishful thinking, right? That's not biblical faith at all. And so you see how we use this word in a particular way, in a particular context uh, in, uh, in our English language that can be very misleading if we apply it to, uh, to uh, Scripture, and so if your idea of what faith is is in any way similar to Tim's idea of faith that the Aggies are going to go uh, undefeated next year or whatever it might be, then you'll see how there's this uh, sort of a false security uh, that you're going to, uh, to find there. And so uh, that is the word faith. You, you can find the same thing with uh, belief. Belief is another word, uh, believe or belief uh, is another word that we tend to use in English to express this concept, but uh, belief doesn't really require any sort of personal commitment to it, right? Who here believes that, uh, that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Who here believes that uh, Mount Everest or K2, Zach already is raising his hand, he doesn't even know the question, uh, that uh, Mount Everest or K2, depending on how you're slicing it, uh, one of those two at least is the tallest mountain in the world, right? Some of you don't know. All right, it's not a trick question. Those two are, one of those two is, depending on uh, how you're measuring uh, the uh, tallest mountain in the world. Now, do you have any vested interest in it? No, as evidenced by the fact that hardly any of you raised your hand. You don't spend your time thinking about, I wonder what's the tallest mountain uh, in the world. All right, and so we can use this word belief. I believe that Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. All right, does that in any way affect my normal daily life? No, absolutely not. And so if your understanding is belief, I believe the gospel is similar to the way that you believe that Mount Everest is the tallest, well then something is, uh, is missing. There's a disconnect there. And so you see how uh, no particular word is going to capture all the nuances of the, the biblical concept 
of faith. In fact, none of these words in themselves are biblical. Faith, belief, uh, trust, none of these words in and of themselves are biblical. Why not? Because the Bible isn't written in English. We're trying to take English words and apply them to these greater uh, contexts. So the, word, the question is not which word is, uh, is necessarily the only word that we can use. We're really trying to ask the question, uh, which English word best captures the Hebrew and the Greek meaning of this particular context? And so I would say that faith or belief or trust can all work depending on what you mean in, uh, in those different contexts. In fact, so can various other words, not just faith or belief or trust. Look at John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so what other verb does he give in addition to believe? Receive, right? John 6.37, these are just from, the, uh, from John's gospel. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So you see that idea. John 7.37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So whatever faith is, whatever this concept is, it involves receiving, it involves believing and coming and drinking and trusting. Each of those kind of contribute to our understanding of what it means to, quote, unquote, have faith. What we shouldn't do is seek to take this, this word, which is kind of like a diamond, and, and the way that you look at it through different uh, 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 light uh, streaming in like a prism is going to increase our, uh, our vision of its glory. What we shouldn't do is then try to reduce that down to its lowest common uh, denominator. So any one word can be somewhat misleading and reductionistic. But when we see all of the different uh, perspectives, it really clarifies uh, the immensity of this concept, this biblical concept of faith. It's not just one word that could be misleading. It's these uh, bigger concepts. That's the first uh, point to recognize, that any one word can be somewhat uh, misleading. Second th- thing that, uh, that you should know is that faith is the result of regeneration. It's one of the, we talked about last week, about regeneration is a seed. And so faith is one of the first fruits of, uh, of regeneration. And we talked about that's not a chronological order. It's not like you're regenerate and then for years and years and years and years and years you don't believe. No, it's an immediate, uh, it's an immediate reality, but there is a logical order to it. So think of striking a match. The moment that you strike that match, there is, uh, there is heat and there is light. There's not this long delay. And yet we know logically there is a priority that the match has to be struck first. Likewise, the moment that you are regenerate, there is belief, all right? But we need to recognize there is an order there. I won't uh, rehash much on this. We spent an hour on it uh, last week. But we talked about the fact that most people grew up hearing this statement. If you believe, you will be born again. If you believe, you will be born again. But that is backwards, biblically. The biblical order is if you are born again then you will believe. Again, we're not talking about chronological order, but logical orders. God calls, and then we are regenerated. We're born again. We have these new hearts. Uh, But there's no lag time between the call, God's call, and his regeneration. Likewise, we're regenerated, and then we repent and believe. But there's no point at which we are regenerate and not believing. It's instantaneous. 
We're regenerated, and then we immediately, we instantly, we believe and repent, and therefore we're united with Christ and justified and adopted and all of these sorts of things. And we really uh, demonstrated this reality through 1 John 5.1, which says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And, uh, and so we looked at the language there in the Greek, and you see these two verbs, believe and has been born. And we said one of those is in a perfect tense, which means a completed action with ongoing results into the present. That's being born of God. And, uh, and the other one is a present tense. That's the ongoing effect. So you're born of God, and the ongoing, present, continuous effect of that is that you uh, believe. Does that make sense there? And, uh, and then we talked about John uh, chapter 3, and uh, everyone uh, knows John 3.16, whoever, whosoever believes, uh, but we looked at uh, the, the uh, context immediately after that. It says, we can't believe. We can't come to the light. Why? Because we hate the light. We love the darkness, according to John 3, 20, 21, something like uh, that, which means that we must be given new eyes that can stand uh, the light. That's being born again in the context of, uh, of John 3. And, uh, and so faith is the result of uh, regeneration. That is one of the primary differences uh, if you're thinking about the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. One of the primary differences is the way that they order those different events. Do you believe first and then you're born again? Or are you born again and then you uh, believe? I think the biblical case is that you're born again therefore um, allowing you or causing you, uh, empowering you to, uh, to believe. That's the second point. Third, a thing that you need to believe about uh, faith or belief, that faith is not mere cognitive uh, assent. It's not merely something uh, that you do with your mind. It's something that also uh, involves uh, kind of the whole person. Uh, Romans 1.32 it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here, mankind knows something about God, uh, and yet that knowledge is not sufficient to save them. In fact, that knowledge will actually condemn them uh, because they suppress that truth. They press down that truth. And, uh, and so this knowledge in Romans 1 further condemns mankind. Or you see in James 2.19 that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and, uh, and shudder. So what are some of the things that uh, the demons believe? Well, in the context of James uh, chapter 2, it's uh, that there is one God. You believe that God is one? That's great. Even the demons believe that. The demons know that there's one God. The demons believe that Scripture is true. The demons believe that Jesus is powerful. Think about all the times that Jesus interacts with demons and they come and they say something like, have you come to destroy us, O Holy One, or something like that. So there are lots of things that demons uh, believe cognitively. So what are they missing? Well, they're missing some sort of a subjective element. Some of the things that we talked about when we used words like trust or receiving or coming or drinking they, they kind of miss this idea of approval and, uh, and trust. So it's not just believing that something is true. That's not the way that the, the Bible is going to use the word belief or faith. It's not just believing that something is true, but also believing that it's good. You kind of have this idea of trusting and treasuring. You treasure it uh, because uh, you trust it. Hebrews 11.6 
And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, listen to these conditions, must believe that he exists. Well, even the demons do that. Here's uh, what distinguishes, though. And that he rewards those who seek him. And so if it's not mere knowledge, what is it? Well, you have this element of comprehension and approval and, uh, and trust. The reformers use these three different words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. That means to know about something, to believe it's true, and then to rest or trust in it. Where any of those elements are missing, you're lacking this holistic view of uh, a biblical faith. And so notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, to know about something, to just know something uh, is, to believe it's true, and then also to trust or to rest in it. That's the subjective sort of element. And, uh, and so what we don't want to do, again, we don't want to pare this down to the least common denominator. We don't want to reduce this, uh, what's intended to be this beautiful sort of mosaic for us and to make it kind of monolithic, to make it just sort of one-sided and, uh, and reduce the, the sort of uh, uh, kind of holistic view uh, of faith biblically. So that's the, the third thing to recognize. Faith is not mere cognitive uh, assent. Fourth, faith means different things in different uh, contexts. We've talked about this, uh, this before. We've talked about the word equivocation. It's when we use uh, a word uh, in one context and try to apply that to multiple contexts. Most theological issues boil down to some element of equivocation, not recognizing that a term has more than one meaning. We talked about that before. Whenever I say, I have faith that the Aggies are going to win a national championship, I mean something totally different than whenever I say, I have faith that Jesus is going to return. Those, I'm using the same word, and yet I mean something totally different uh, by then. And, uh, and so faith can mean different things in different contexts. When Paul says that you're justified by faith, and James says you're justified by works and not by faith alone, well, they mean different things. They mean different things. Whenever uh, uh, Paul is talking about justification and James is talking about justification, they mean something slightly different by the word justification. When they're talking about faith, they mean something slightly different by the word uh, faith. And so we've used uh, a number of examples uh, to, to kind of show this uh, before. But imagine me saying, I have a right to free speech, right? The Constitution guarantees that I have a right to free speech. Therefore, it's right for me to curse God, right? What have I just done there? Equivocation. I've used the same word, right. I have a right to something. And then I've applied it in this other context where there's something that's untrue. I don't have a right to curse God. And, uh, and so that is, uh, again, equivocation. And so examples that we see with faith, that the demons believe, that doesn't mean that they have faith in the sense that you and I have faith. Texts that talk about someone believing and falling away, like you ever read the parable of the sower, which talks about certain people receive the word and, uh, and the, the, the crop comes up and then eventually it withers away and you wonder, were they actual genuine believers? And you see, well, that's equivocation there. They're not receiving, uh, they're not exercising faith in the same way. We're using the same word, but we mean something slightly different uh, by it. In certain contexts, the word faith is, uh, is viewed as a spiritual gift, which not all believers possess. And, uh, and so that doesn't mean that some Christians don't have faith, it means that there is a particular gifting of faith that some Christians possess in addition to the saving faith 
that all Christians uh, possess. And so, uh, so again, one of the things you'll have to wor- uh, look out for as you're reading Scripture is this issue of equivocation. When an author is using the word believe, when the author is using the word faith, when the author is using whatever it is that our English translation have, uh, do they mean something by this uh, that, uh, or, or what do they mean by this that they might not mean if they were using the word in another context? And the way that you avoid this uh, sort of uh, error of equivocation is context. That's the first rule. Of biblical interpretation. It's the second rule of biblical interpretation. It's the third rule of biblical uh, interpretation. That is uh, context. So how is the author intending this word to be used in this particular context? Fifth thing to recognize that faith and repentance are distinct yet inseparable graces. Faith and repentance are distinct yet inseparable graces. Uh, graces. We'll talk about uh, repentance next week. That's why we call this conversion part one. We'll talk about conversion part two with repentance next week. In the, uh, in the 1980s uh, at, uh, at DTS, which is uh, my alma mater, it's also where Jerry Hallbrook went, it's also where uh, Tim is currently going, uh, there was this theology uh, that began to be uh, kind of uh, promoted. It was systematized, and it was referred to as free grace uh, theology. Here are some of the tenets of this idea of free grace uh, theology, which some of you might have heard of, uh, some of you might not have heard of. It sounds like a good thing, uh, free grace. Everyone uh, loves uh, free grace. But, uh, but the particular theological system, here's some of the things that, uh, that uh, these teachers taught. That repentance is not necessary for salvation. That you can receive Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Who's ever heard something like that? Who's ever heard someone say uh, that you can have Jesus as Savior, but, uh, but not Lord? Okay, a few of you. Uh, that a true Christian may or may not ever show any fruit of regeneration. They might simply persist in sin and never show any signs whatsoever of uh, actually being regenerate. Uh, some would even go so far as to teach that you can bo- be born again, that you can fall in sin, you can live in that sin, you can renounce Christ and become a self-professing atheist. You can die in that state and still be saved. All right? If you've been coming for a while, all of those things should set off some crazy uh, discernment uh, alarms for you. This is not a shining jewel in the crown of DTS's history. Thankfully, that's not the position of the seminary uh, today, but here you see another example of this idea of equivocation. You're taking one meaning of the word uh, faith, or you're taking one meaning of the word grace or believe, and you're interpreting the entire concept through that one particular nuance of the word, rather than taking into account the holistic nature of the uh, concept. Where there is faith without repentance, the Bible would say, it's not true faith. The issue is not, do you have to have faith plus something else? The issue is, do you have faith in the uh, first place? Uh, that uh, as a number of reformers and Spurgeon and a number of other people have said that we're saved by faith alone, but never by a faith which is alone. That true faith always is going to produce fruit. Does that make sense? That's part of the way that you can discern true faith versus false faith. You take a seed and you put it in the ground and you water it, it's going to bear fruit. You take a pebble and you put it in the ground and you water it and it doesn't. 
One of the ways that you can distinguish between a seed and a pebble is by planting it. Likewise, one of the ways that you can distinguish between true faith and false faith is whether or not it bears uh, fruit. And so uh, that uh, is part of the, the point here of this idea that faith and repentance are distinct yet inseparable graces. Uh, yet inseparable graces. So again, the question isn't are we saved by faith alone, but rather what is the nature of of that faith. That's part of the question that James is going to be dealing with in James chapter 2 where he says faith without works is dead. He's not saying you must have faith plus works. He's saying you must have a working faith. You must have a living faith that the nature, the true nature of saving faith is going to necessarily uh, bear works. And so uh, we'll talk about repentance next week. Uh, but really what we're talking about, as we talk about faith and repentance, we're just talking about two sides of the same coin. So think of a little coin. On one side you have heads, on the other side you have tails, but you only have one coin, right? It's only one coin, but on one side you have uh, heads, on the other side you have tails. Likewise, the conversion experience involves both faith and repentance, but it's only one uh, experience. If you were right now in your seat, if you were to turn around, put your back to me, and you were to face those doors, all right, so you turn 180 degrees, you only turn once, but notice in that turning, you do two things. You turn away from something, you turn away from me, you turn away from the front, you turn away from the, the whiteboard, whatever it might be, and you turn toward something, you turn toward the back. You only turn once. And yet that turning from different perspectives can be seen as a turning away and a turning toward. Does that make sense? Likewise with faith and repentance. Faith is turning toward God. Repentance is turning away from sin. It's impossible logically. Think about this. How can you turn away from me without turning toward something else? It's impossible. You can try it right now if you really want to. You can stand up and try to turn away from me without spatially turning toward something else. It's absolutely impossible. Likewise, how can you turn toward God without turning away from sin? It's logically impossible. So anyone who would teach that you can have faith without repentance doesn't understand faith or repentance. It's, it's absolutely logically absurd. So they are two sides of the same coin. Only one turn is necessary. We turn toward Christ and yet logically, as we're turning toward Christ, we're also turning away from uh, sin. We see, by the way, faith and repentance are going to be linked throughout uh, Scripture. Mark 1.15, Jesus is speaking. He's saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those things are linked together. Hebrews 6.1, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. There's a turning away, repentance from something, and a turning toward, faith toward God. Acts 20.21, 20, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in certain contexts in the book of Acts, you're going to see one or the other. We've talked about this uh, before, that uh, in the book of Acts, you'll often see uh, one of a few different uh, verbs. It will say believe, it will say repent, it will say be baptized. Sometimes what people want to do is they want to look and they, uh, they want to look in one particular context that says you must be baptized. And so they say, see, baptism is necessary for salvation. You can't be saved if you're not baptized. And they'll say it doesn't say anything about repenting or believing. All that matters is if you're baptized. Well, then in other contexts, it says all you have to do is believe. See, you don't have to repent. You don't have to be baptized. 
not noticing that what's happening in the book of Acts is all of these things are seen as kind of a, 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 a strand of three chords, if you will. Faith and repentance and baptism. Faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. Where you have faith, you necessarily have repentance. An author doesn't necessarily have to, to mention both of them. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, they know that their audience is going to recognize, every time I say faith, I also mean repentance. Every time I say repentance, I also mean faith. And by the way, every time I talk about baptism, I mean the outward symbol of the inward reality of faith and repentance. And, uh, and so you'll see oftentimes an author will only use one of the three, uh, or a speaker in the book of Acts will only use one of the three, of uh, faith or repentance or baptism, or sometimes they'll use two of the three. Or sometimes they'll use all three. They don't intend to say only one is necessary. They're intending for us to see that all of these things are intended to go together. So when I use one, I really mean all three. Does that make sense? That's the book of Acts. So faith and repentance are distinct yet inseparable graces. Next point. Faith is attached to the word. Faith is attached to the word or to, uh, to scripture. It's not uh, irrational or illogical. It isn't just simply you doing the most illogical thing. Like if you were to just sit around and think, what is the most illogical thing for me to do in this moment? I'm going to go do that. That's real faith. All right. So real faith would be me going and stepping in front of a, a, a semi-truck on the highway. No, that's stupid. That's not faith. Right. It's not simply doing the most irrational thing. It's also not simply doing the most rational thing, as if that's faith. Uh, and, uh, and so what is it instead? No, it's something that's tethered to the Word of God, the promises of God, the warnings uh, of God. Acts 27, 25, uh, Paul says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Told by whom? By God. Romans 10, 17, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So this is why we talk about all the time, faith is not weakened by knowledge as we, we say, theology uh, is the sealing of your doxology, your ability to worship God, your ability to live uh, under, his, uh, uh, under His grace and mercy and under His commands uh, is directly tied uh, to your understanding of uh, who He is and what He has done uh, in Scripture. And so you see throughout the Bible that faith is attached to the promises and warnings of Scripture. And we're called to believe both, both the promises of Scripture and also the warnings of Scripture. And so saving faith is going to involve both the reality of uh, belief and the, uh, and, and the reality of condemnation and also trust in the grace and goodness of God that's bound up in, uh, in Christ. So faith isn't just believing in God, it's believing God. Think about the difference there. Faith isn't just believing in God. Demons believe in God. It's believing God. It's trusting His Word. There's a difference. Uh, by the way, this also means that faith is not just some sort of magical formula or some sort of subjective thing. Like if you uh, heard those who kind of proclaim prosperity gospel, word of faith movement that declares if you just believe something enough, you'll get it. That isn't faith. That's idolatry. That's covetousness. Uh, some teach that if you just have faith that you won't get cancer you won't get sick or you won't get fired. But none of those are promises in Scripture. Like Scripture never says you won't get cancer, you won't get sick, you won't get fired from your job. Scripture does promise that there's going to be a resurrection in which there will be no cancer. 
There will be no sickness. There will be no firing from jobs or whatever uh, it might be. Uh, so those are the things that we are to, uh, to believe. But it isn't uh, faith that demands that God gives us now what he's promised us later. That's presumption. That's arrogance. And so faith isn't some sort of force field to protect us from suffering. Think about uh, even in Ephesians 6, it talks about the shield of faith. And what is the shield of faith used in the context to do? It's to protect you from something. Anyone know? The fiery darts of the accuser, right? That's what faith is intended to do. As uh, I think Zach's sermon uh, last week talked about, that the enemy can condemn uh, in the sense of he can shout condemnations. He can't actually affect your condemnation, though. Uh, The enemy can accuse. In fact, that's all he does. And the more that we resist, the louder and louder and louder uh, he gets. That's what faith does. Faith is a force field for that. Faith is not intended as a shield to protect us from germs and bacteria and viruses and uh, all of those uh, sorts of things, suffering in a fallen world. Philippians 1, 21 through 29, actually connects faith to uh, suffering. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you not only should believe in him, but also suffer for his uh, sake. So faith in, uh, or so suffering in this sense is something that's been granted Uh, to you. It is, uh, in a sense, seen as a grace. So the seventh point, faith itself is a gift of God. It's implied in that that Philippians verse we just read. It's been granted to you that you should not only believe but should also suffer for his sake. Faith is something that's been granted to you. The word granted is just the verbal form of uh, of the noun, the word grace or gift. Uh, and so it's been granted to you. It's been graced to you. It's been gifted to you. And so speaking of grace, that's what Ephesians 2.8 says. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So the question becomes, what does the word this mean? You see that word there in the very middle of the, uh, of the verse? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what does this and it refer to? Well, there's two nouns in the context. There's the noun grace and there's the noun faith. So which one of those is he talking about? When he says this is not your own doing, does he mean grace or does he mean uh, faith? What wouldn't make any sense whatsoever for Paul to say grace is not your own doing. That would be redundant. That's obvious by the very definition of grace. It's something that's not your own doing. It's a gift by its very definition, and, uh, and so maybe he means their faith, but I think that's kind of slicing it too thin. Instead, what I think he's doing here is he's saying the entire process, the entire process of your salvation from the, uh, from the very grace that God gives to the very faith that you have uh, that causes your uh, salvation, all of that is uh, a gift. In fact, the Greek is going to suggest that he means by this uh, both faith and, uh, and grace are not your own uh, doing. And, uh, and so, you know, you're familiar with languages where nouns are gendered? Think of like uh, if you studied uh, Spanish or something like that, and, uh, and so different nouns are gendered. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that they're actually more masculine. It's like el telefono. That's not like a, you know, men are more likely to use the phone or something like that. But just the way that language functions in certain uh, languages, their, uh, their nouns are, uh, are uh, gendered. And uh, that's the same in, 
uh, in, uh, in Greek. And, uh, and so in, uh, in the Greek of this uh, verse, Ephesians 2.8, uh, both faith and grace are feminine nouns. In Greek, faith and grace are feminine nouns. But what's interesting is that the pronoun, this, that we've been talking about, this is not your own doing, it is, uh, it's, it's neuter. Uh, it, is, uh, it is something that is, has no uh, gender. In other words, it's intended to not apply to one or the other, but to uh, both, to uh, kind of highlight the entire process. In other words, what Paul's saying is the grace of your salvation, including your faith, is entirely not your own doing. It's a gift. That's the point that he uh, is making there. And this, again, is really huge. This is another one of those things that is going to distinguish Reformed uh, theology. Is faith something that we kind of muster up on our own? Is it that we kind of strike a, a match in our own hearts and there's a little flicker of light and so God takes these sort of uh, regenerating bellows and he applies the bellows to uh, the spark of faith that we have and that then erupts and then we're born again. Or is that spark itself a gift of God's grace that he doesn't give uh, to all people? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, here's why this is really important, because unless or until you really embrace this idea that even your faith is a gift from God, then you'll always boast to some degree. Deep down, you'll always think that God loves you because you've loved him first, because you did something first. And here's why that's so bad. Not only is that arrogant, not only uh, is that idolatrous, not only is all of that kind of stuff, but it doesn't ultimately give you any sort of ultimate ground for standing. Because if God's grace to you was dependent upon you, then his sustaining of you is dependent upon you. If God gave you grace as a result of what you did or didn't do, then God can take away his grace as a result of what you do or don't do. You see that you'll always believe, if you believe that, uh, that God's grace to you was somehow him responding to this little flicker in you, then you'll always believe deep down that God loves you and saves you because you believed or because you repented or because you obeyed. And thus your, your hope is in some sense in you, which ultimately is going to destroy uh, any hope you have of actually having hope. So faith itself is a, uh, is a gift of God. Next thing. Number eight, faith doesn't save you. Faith doesn't save you. Here's what I mean by that. God saves you. God saves you by grace through faith. Right? You're not saved by faith. Neither are you saved without faith. I'm not saying that you can be saved without faith. You are saved through faith. But there's a difference in saying you are saved by faith and you're saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8, we read it before. I'll read it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So when talking about salvation, we need to distinguish between the source of salvation and the instrument of salvation. Imagine uh, that a person is, uh, is dying of thirst. Right? This person is uh, literally dying of thirst, and they come upon this water fountain, and, uh, and they drink deeply and are saved. Right? There's a sense in which you could say that they're saved by that water fountain, but we all recognize that the water fountain itself didn't actually do anything, right? 
It's actually the water that saves them. The water fountain is just the instrument through which the water is going to flow to them. Likewise, faith itself doesn't save you. Faith is like that water fountain. It's grace that saves you. In fact, it's God uh, that, uh, that saves you. And uh, so faith is the faucet. Grace is what's flowing through the pipes from the source who is God himself. Here's why this is really important. Suppose that you're really, really thirsty. Suppose you're really physically thirsty. Should you spend all of your time kind of, uh, kind of tearing apart that water fountain to figure out how it works? Is that going to actually quench your thirst? Some of you engineers out there who just love to know how things work. Is it going to quench your thirst if you just simply uh, stare at the water fountain or if you draw pictures of the water fountain or if you sing songs about the water fountain or whatever it might be? No, obviously that's not going to do anything. What's, what is going to quench your thirst is if you actually drink from it. Likewise, some of us that struggle with doubt, some of us that struggle with anxiety, some of us that struggle with fear or depression or whatever uh, it might be, what we do is we spend our time thinking about the water fountain. We spend the time examining our faith instead of looking to uh, Jesus. There's, a, uh, there's a, a pastor who died really young a long time ago, Robert Murray McShane, and he had this, uh, this quote that's really good. He says, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. In other words, don't get caught in this cycle of uh, sort of excessive introspection. Uh, it's not your faith that's going to save you. So don't spend all of your time examining your faith. Spend your time examining Christ because he's the one that actually saves you. Number nine, what matters is not the degree, but the direction or object of your faith. I'm going to have to go much more quickly here through these next ones. Weak faith gets you the same strong Jesus. We've mentioned that a number of times. Weak faith gets you the same strong Jesus. How much is enough? Ironically, that very question kind of undercuts faith. It makes it about us, as we mentioned before. Then we begin to spend our time thinking about, do I have that amount of faith? Instead of thinking, do I have Jesus? Which is the only question that really matters. Go back to that water illustration. Does it matter to you if you're dying of thirst? Does it matter to you if you are uh, there with like one of those firefighter hoses of water versus a little garden hose? Well, no, not really. I mean, the firefighter would probably blow your head off, but you get the illustration there, right? It doesn't matter to you in that moment if it's a huge water fountain or a little water fountain because what matters is not the size of the water fountain. What matters is the, uh, the water uh, itself. And so a molecule of faith in the right thing is worth more than a mountain of faith in the, uh, the wrong thing. And uh, so what matters is not the degree but the direction or the object of your uh, faith. Speaking uh, of this as a consequence, weak faith can be nurtured. That's the tenth point. Weak faith can be nurtured. That Faith can, it does ebb and flow in the life of a believer, but it's never truly eradicated. It can waver, it can falter, but it never fully fail, fails. In Luke 17, 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. In Mark 9, 24, uh, a father of a child uh, cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. So how can it be nurtured? How can it be cultivated? What matters is not the degree of your faith, but the object or the, uh, the direction of your faith. And yet at the same time, the Bible would encourage us to nurture our faith, to cultivate our faith. So how do we uh, do it? Well, the various means of grace that God has provided. 
that uh, he's given to us, the baptism and communion and reading the word and gathering with the saints and praying for yourself and others uh, and singing and confessing sin and fasting and on uh, and on. Just to be really clear, if you are neglecting God's means of grace, you should not in any sense uh, expect God to move. You shouldn't expect God to move. If you're sitting there looking at the water fountain and you're refusing to drink uh, of the water, you shouldn't expect your thirst uh, to be uh, quenched. And uh, so if someone says that they want this richer and deeper faith, they want this uh, deeper, whether it's uh, a head experience or a heart experience or whatever it might be, uh, experience uh, of faith, and yet they're unwilling uh, to really chase after God and the means that he's provided, it shows that they really want something more than that. I had a, a person who had uh, emailed me over the course of a few months, this is a, a couple of years uh, ago, and they'd write probably every two weeks or so, and, uh, and so in their second email, I think, I asked them, hey, what, what church are you a member of? Because I saw they lived in Montana or Wyoming or something like that, and uh, they said, oh, we're not, I'm not a member of uh, any church. And, uh, and so they were just talking about it. they wanted to love God. They didn't feel like they loved him enough. And uh, they felt like there were some, uh, some, some chains of sin that they just couldn't break. And uh, the more I talked to them, I just kept pushing them. you got, you got to get involved in the church. you got to get involved in the church. No, I don't, I don't really want to get. And so finally I got to a point after six months or so, I said, I don't know how I can help you. If you're unwilling to do the things that God has told you to do, you're not going to grow in the way that he has caused you to grow. It's like a, a, a kid saying, I want to get big and strong and yet never eating or never exercising or whatever uh, it might uh, be. And so weak faith can be nurtured through the means that God has provided. Eleventh, sorry for having to speed through these last few. Faith alone is the instrument for salvation in both Old Testament and the New Testament. So how are the Old Testament fa- saints saved by grace through faith? Faith in what? Uh, through the gospel, but through a shadow of the gospel. Colossians two sixteen through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, sorry, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews 10 has a similar sort of idea of the law being a shadow of the good things uh, to come. So you see here this, this illustration of shadow versus substance. The Old Testament saints are saved by a shadow. They're saved by looking forward at something. They don't see it as clearly as we do. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but we're looking at the same thing. They're looking forward through a fog. They're looking forward uh, through this sort of uh, imagery of a shadow, whereas we're looking backward at the substance, but we're saved by the exact same thing. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, both saved by faith in God and God's redemptive plan, uh, although we actually see that a little bit uh, more uh, clearly, and, uh, and so uh, that's point 11 and point 12, that this understanding of faith, all the things that we've just talked about, is a distinguishing element of Christianity in general and really in, of Protestantism in uh, particular. So all the cults that you look at, uh, you, you go online and you research cults, all the other major world religions that you look at, on some level they teach justification by Works And just about every sort of deviant religious uh, movement, whether it's Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Buddhism or uh, Hinduism or whatever, there's at least some sort of idea of justification by works. And none of those are people saved or redeemed by grace alone through faith alone. In fact, 
There's also hints of justification by works and a denial of justification by faith alone in official Roman Catholic uh, teaching. And uh, so just briefly end uh, with this. In uh, what year did Luther post the 95 Theses? Anybody know? 1517. So last year we had the 500th anniversary uh, of that uh, event. And so he posted those. The Reformation begins at uh, that point uh, historically, at least uh, that's when most people kind of highlight the beginning of it. Pretty quickly thereafter, there was what was called a counter-reformation. Within the Roman Catholic Church, there was a response to the uh, Reformation, and uh, in 1545 all the way through 1563, there was a council called the Council of Trent for 18 years. Think about that. You think our services here are long. They had a council for 18 Years, and this was the official Roman Catholic response to the Reformation. And here are some of the things that they say that are pertinent to our understanding of justification uh, by faith alone. Uh, so again, this is the Roman Catholic. By the way, these have not been revoked. And so uh, officially, although you probably, there are, Christian, uh, there are Catholics who are legitimate Christians, uh, and yet this is the official Roman Catholic dogma when it comes to uh, these uh, topics, uh, although most of your average Roman Catholics wouldn't actually uh, agree with these things. Uh, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious are justified, that nothing else is required to obtain justification, that it's not necessary to use one's own will, let him be anathema. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing but confidence in divine mercy, let him be anathema. That word anathema means to be condemned, to be damned. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and increased, before God through good works. Your justification can be increased. You're more justified in Roman Catholic teaching. But the works are the fruits and signs of justification and not a cause of the increase. Let him be anathema. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out, that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged in this world or the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him. Let him be anathema. In other words, every one of us in this room probably is anathema, which is really good news. Uh, so I want to end with that. Those are 12 things that you should uh, believe about faith. Have Zachary come up and uh, we'll do some Q&A.